Why are the Jewish people indestructible? So Haman tried to destroy us, destroy the entire Jewish people at that time. As far as we know, every Jew in the world lived in the Persian Empire, which stretched from India to Greece. And so um, they, they would have destroyed all the Jews of the Persian Empire. They would have destroyed the entire Jewish people. To Ethiopia. Yeah, different quarters. And so, um, so, so we got close to being destroyed, but God saved us and we were not destroyed. And this has really happened throughout history. In every single generation, we say this in the Haggadah on Passover, they have tried to destroy us. Pharaoh tried to destroy us. Um, later, the um, uh, Haman tried to destroy us. Later, the Romans tried to destroy us. Um, and over the years, there were many, many that tried to destroy our people, where they tried to destroy some of us, or they had this grand plan to destroy our the entire people. In the 19th century, there was a... Um, there was even a term for it called the Jewish question, how to get rid of the Jews. The czars in Russia came up with a grand plan to get rid of the Jews. Um, the um, Hitler, of course, came up with a plan to get rid of the Jews. Uh, they had, he had, till today, it apparently in his um, offices or his homes, um, which are a museum today, um, he had a picture of the globe with the numbers of. Um, Jews in every single country in the world, including in the United States, because he had a plan to somehow exterminate every single Jew. Um, that was his goal. And um, not only that, Stalin tried to destroy the Jewish people. Um, he died on he was he died on Purim um, as he was about to destroy the people. Um, and there were many others throughout our throughout history that have always just tried to destroy us again and again and again. And yet somehow we always survived. Sometimes we suffered greatly. Sometimes many people were hurt. Sometimes many people were killed. But we as a people always survive. And we continue to survive um, despite all the odds. And in a sense, our survival is the greatest miracle in history. Because there have been many other nations throughout the world um, over the years. Most of them, we're here for over 3,000 years. Most of them have not survived. Only we have survived. And we survived not as a nation that had our own land. We didn't for most of this period. We didn't have our own land. Not as a nation that was accepted or admired. We weren't. We were persecuted in almost every single place we lived. We were persecuted. They came up with all sorts of edicts and all sorts of ways to try to destroy us, to forcibly convert us, to kill us. To, uh, they expelled us. They didn't let us leave. They, came through to, they had all sorts of ways to try to destroy us. And yet, we're still here. And perhaps more than anything, the fact that of all the peoples of the world, the one people that managed to survive is our people shows, if anything, the miracle of our people, the miracle of history. So how did we survive? So the Talmud says, indeed, we are like one sheep among 70 wolves. Because, as we know, um, while not everybody in the world hates us, there are a lot of people in the world that hate us. And uh, we did a class some time ago about anti-Semitism. Um, while we are lucky today to live in a country where we are the most popular minority in the country, 
And uh, although there is, unfortunately, rising anti-Semitism, it is very, very, very tiny, and we have to recognize that. We live in one of the best places we've ever lived in history. And um, most of us have never directly experienced anti-Semitism. At least that's what surveys show, that the vast majority of Jews in the United States never directly experienced anti-Semitism. So we're very lucky. However, we live in a world where most people in the world hate us. And surveys done again and again... Now, the ADL does surveys, the Pew has done surveys across the world, in countries across the world, show that most people in the world hate us and would destroy us if they could. We just don't live anywhere near them. What's their reason for hating us? That is a very good question. That is for another class. That is for another class. We spoke about anti-Semitism. We spoke about anti-Semitism. They have lots and lots of different reasons. Sometimes they hate us because we're too rich. Sometimes they hate us because we're too poor. Sometimes they, they hate us because we are um, because we have dual loyalties. Sometimes they hate us because we're taking over their society. They all have different reasons for hating us, uh, but they still ha- hate us. We believe the underlying reason why they hate us is because we serve as their moral conscience. And indeed, Hitler wrote that in his book, that we serve as the world's moral conscience, which is why he doesn't want us. Um, so, so what? So why? Why? I disagree, but we'll talk about that after. The yeah, that's a class in and of itself. So why did we survive? Why did we survive? So the Talmud says, as a shepherd among seventy wolves, the only way we survive. Sorry, as a sheep among seventy wolves. The only way we survived is because we have a very strong shepherd. And our shepherd constantly fends off those wolves. Otherwise, we would have long gone. We would be long gone. Um, We needed that shepherd. In other words, we needed God's protection. And ultimately, it is God's protection to... um, Ultimately, it is God's protection to... um, that allowed us to survive. There was actually a New York Times bestseller from the 1970s called The Indestructible Jew. Some of you may have read it. And that was a book about explaining how we survived that essentially shows that the only way we survived is because God, the miracle of history, because God protected us. Had God not protected us, there is no way that we could have survived. However, There is an important key to that. There's an important part to that. There's an important thing that we do, firstly, to earn God's protection, but also something that allows us to survive throughout our history, uh, something that has always been part of our survival. And this key can be seen from the Megillah story itself. Now, the story of the Megillah is about how Haman tried to destroy our people and... Esther, with Mordechai's prodding, managed to convince the king to save us. That's the story of the Megillah. It's really a great plot about how we were saved. God is not actually directly mentioned in the Megillah because there was no supernatural miracle. But clearly the way way it all played out and the fact that Esther was in the right place at the right time and the king listened to her and everything played out the way it was supposed to um, itself is the miracle of Purim. However, the early part of the Megillah is very strange. The early part, the first part of the Megillah tells us about the king's party and how, as a result of his party, he got drunk 
and he killed his queen. Now that might be somewhat relevant for us to know why he needed a queen, but really we don't really need this party as part of the story. The story would have been a great story had it started with the king needed a queen and he called all the women to Shushan and Esther was taken and Esther was chosen as the queen. That would have been a great opening to the story. Um, There was no need for it to tell us all about King Ahasuerus' party. That he could get rid of his queen, okay. It also shows how foolish he was that he sent this decree, the Talmud says, that he sent this decree that women must listen to their husbands, um, and everyone laughed at him. And so he made, it gives us a sense of how foolish he was, but still it's not necessary for the story. I'm going to soon explain why it is. Yes. When did, uh, is that the first time Yes, yes. Until then, she didn't tell him, yes. When she said, me and my people, he didn't know who she was talking about. When she said, someone's going to kill me and my people. Right. Right. And then he probably said, oh, what? Yes. Yes, Barry. It's interesting. On Shabbat, one of the things we do is is, uh, we uh, we have a prayer. uh, We pray for our nation. And I assume so in France, they would pray for the nation of France. So so here you have uh, Haman. So they have Mordecai, and he's in, a, he's in a nation, not this nation. And, uh, and Haman, at the time before he was put to death, he, was, he represented the king and wanted Mordecai to bow down to him. So, uh, so he has Mordecai. So Why did Mordecai refuse to bow down? To, yeah, when, when so there's actually, the, the Talmud points out, there's nothing halakhically wrong with bowing down to another person. Um, because if you bow not as worshipping them, but if you bow as a sign of respect, there's nothing halakhically wrong with that. However, Haman, the Talmud says, there must have been some idol worship involved. Either he himself declared himself as a deity, or the Talmud suggests that he um, had an idol on his neck, and he insisted that they bow down to his idol. Um, He would wear an idol. And so um, it, there, was, there must have been idolatry. Otherwise, Mordechai would have had no reason not to bow down. Let me continue. I'll take questions about the Purim story later. So why is this early part of the story mentioned? So the Talmud tells us, now this early part of the story actually tells us exactly what went wrong to start with. Why? A little bit of a background. The Jewish people during the story of this, um, during the Purim story, the Jewish people had been sent into exile. They had been exiled by, um, uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, uh, before the Persian, Persians had come on the scene. And they had been brought to, out of Israel, they had been brought to Mesopotamia, where they settled Babylon, where they settled, and they built a great thriving community that's going to last over a thousand years. And for a 70-year period, they lived there without anyone living in the land of Israel until finally Cyrus allowed some Jews to go back to Israel, who went back to begin the rebuilding of the temple. Um, however, Ahasuerus, when he became king after the death of Cyrus, he um, stops the rebuilding of the temple. And um, then Ahasuerus, and then, um, and so the people are living in the Persian Empire, but they're living and they're gradually, they're successful. They were in exile, but they were very successful. And they had assimilated. <laughs> Now, many Jews were now in positions of power. We know Daniel, the prophet Daniel, 
is in a position of power. His friends, Hanani, Mishal, and Azari are positions of power in the Persian Empire. There are a lot of Jews who are very, very successful at essentially assimilating into the Persian Empire. And so, King Ahasuerus makes a feast for the public, for all the people of Shushan. So the Talmud tells us that Mordechai, who was the religious leader of the people of Shushan, warns the people not to go to King Ahasuerus' feast. They are warned not to go to the feast. Why should they not go to the feast? So the so some suggest that it wasn't kosher. However, the Talmud says the Talmud says that. It may have even been kosher. In other words, it may have at least been a kosher option. You could have, maybe, perhaps you could have ordered kosher at Ahasuerus' feast. But rather, the reason is, at the feast, King Ahasuerus brought out the utensils from the temple, from the captured temple. And he was celebrating the rise of the Persian Empire over the Jewish people. And so he was... Sorry? He was celebrating the rise of the Persians over the Jewish people. And so if the Jewish people would go to the feast, they'd essentially be celebrating their own demise. They'll be celebrating the, Jewish, the Persian rise over them. Why would they do it? Why would the Jewish people go to the feast? So they wanted to be part of the Persian Empire. They wanted to um, assimilate. This is something that unfortunately our people have done throughout, and we'll talk about others that have done it later, um, but they wanted to assimilate. They wanted to, they, they recognized that we don't need to go back to Israel. We don't need to go back and rebuild the temple. We're quite happy here as subjects of the Persian Empire. We're quite happy here um, in Persia. What happens when, when the Jews begin to assimilate? So when the Jews begin to assimilate, firstly, the shepherd stops taking care of us. The shepherd God, so when we begin to assimilate, doesn't take care of us in the same way. Similarly, in addition, when we begin to assimilate, the non-Jews whom we assimilate among, whom we thought would be so much happier if we act like them, they're actually much more upset. They're much more upset because you're supposed to be different. You're not supposed to look like me. And so they get even more upset, and that is when they want to destroy the people. And that is what drove Haman to destroy our people. What drove Haman is the people's desire to assimilate. And this is something that this is something that has happened throughout our history. Whenever we have attempted to be like everybody else and to assimilate, to lose our Jewish identity and to be like everybody else, it has impacted us. Not only have we lost ourselves to assimilation, simply our children forgot they were Jewish, but also when we wanted to be like the other people, we also eventually aroused the wrath of our nations who plucked us out and they ended up destroying us. Um, two times that this happened in our history. And again, it's important to remember that we're not justifying that God allowed this to happen because we did anything wrong, because ultimately we don't have the ability to justify or explain why negative things happen. Yet, this is the result of what happens when we assimilate. One example of this happening was in Spain. In Spain, Jews were very, very, very successful. Um, in Christian Spain, first in Muslim Spain, then in Christian Spain, in the uh, 14th, 15th centuries, Jews were extremely successful. However, they were limited because they were Jewish. So many Jews converted to Christianity. 
Some were forcibly converted, many converted willingly in order to continue rising through the holes of power and, through, um, and um, in order to build their businesses. Many Jews converted to Christianity. However, as a result, as a result, the, um, the Spanish, not only did they not embrace these new conversos, but they despised them. They brought in the Inquisition to uncover them and uncover their secret Jewish activities. And not only that, they went so far as to expel all of the Jews from Spain. And they continued to go after these conversos. For the next 200 years, the Inquisition continued to find and torture and kill conversos in Spain. Now, um, Benjamin Netanyahu's father was a professor of history, and um, he wrote a very well-known book about the Inquisition. But one of the important points that he made was that the conversos were not really secret Jews. Some were, mostly in Portugal, a very small number. Most conversos were real Christians. They wanted to assimilate all the way into Christian life. They had given up entirely on Judaism. And those were the people that the Inquisition were going after. It was those people who were Jewish, really Jewish, but they had adopted Christianity. Those were the ones who were most hated. And those were the ones who were most persecuted. The interesting thing is they're always trying to convert everybody. But then when we do, they hate us. Yeah. The same happened also. Um, the same, I, you know what, I actually, maybe I'm online, I should, maybe I shouldn't share this. I heard this from somebody whom I know who is of Jewish background, who's a practicing Christian, who is in, who goes to a church in the area, who has told me that they hear this, the anti-Semitism, um, in just the local church here. Um, they hear anti-Semitism um, from other people. And yeah, they invite us in, and then once we come in, they still hate us. So, um, so... them to here, to the new country, yes. Yes, yes, in Brazil. And so the... Mexico. Mexico. Okay, and so in addition, um, in another example of this was in Germany. In Germany, there was a movement um, called the Enlightenment, started by Moses Mendelssohn, which essentially said that Jews should be Jewish at home, but publicly German. Or they should be, they call themselves Germans of Mosaic faith. There was no Jewish people. They were part of the German, the Deutsch Volk, the um, German people. Um, they just happened to be of Jewish religion. And so they should dress and act like Germans entirely and only be Jewish at home. And then many took it a step further. They made their synagogues to look exactly like churches and had their rabbis dressed like priests in order to be as German-like as they possibly could. And uh, of course we know that as much as the Jews of Germany, and many Jews of course in Germany did convert the 19th century to Christianity, to kind of go all the way to assimilate into German culture. Um, many Germ Jews fought for Germany in um, the World War I, um, and uh, many were decorated. And uh, many were very, very strong nationalists. But we know, of course, that Germany was where the greatest anti-Semitism 
rose in the early 20th century, the strongest anti-Semitism. There were these strong anti-Semitic parties, um, these strong anti... uh, And um, it gradually rose to become Nazism. And believe it or not, there were a lot of Jews that at first supported the Nazi party. And there were Jews that said they loved the Nazi party, just not their Jewish program. Um, Because they were strong nationalists. Um, Jews that were trying to be more German than the Germans, and of course we know how that ended. So um, unfortunately what's tended to happen is throughout history, as we begin to assimilate, our neighbors persecute us further. So, And this is what happened in the Purim story, this is what happens again and again. What then is the key to our survival? Of course we need the shepherd, but why are our people indestructible? Because we stand unique. Because we stand separate. Because we stand up for who we are. Only when we stand unique and we stand separate, then are we respected. Then are we allowed to survive and we allowed to continue. And then of course God protects us and we have God's help as well. But ultimately we need that to know, be proud of who we are. To be public about who we are as Jews. Not be afraid to share it. To tell people that we're Jewish, not be afraid to be open about it, not be afraid to tell people we take off Jewish holidays, don't give other excuses, say I'm taking off because it's a Jewish holiday, and, um, or dress like a Jew, wear a yarmulke publicly, um, and be seen as publicly Jewish, where people often tell me, I hear it all the time, people tell me they don't want to have a mezuzah on their door because they're afraid somebody will see it and will mark their house as Jewish. And I always respond that we live in the safest place Jews have ever lived in our history. When Jews lived in Eastern Europe, or when Jews lived in Spain, or when Jews lived in the Middle East, when we were hated and there were regular pogroms, our grandparents had mezuzahs on their doors. They were proud of who they were and unafraid to let people know that they, this was a Jewish home, even though that made it an easy target in a pogrom. Thankfully, we don't suffer pogroms. We can have the pride and take the risk and have businesses too. And of course, as Debbie said, it protects us. Yes, Eddie? Okay, so um, I'm a little confused about the people that wanted to continue to be Jewish but because of wanting to the Jews to survive and for them to survive, that's the way it would continue, they pretend to be, right, openly, and, they, you know, they conceal themselves, but then they are truly people who are... Whenever we did that, we didn't survive. It never worked. So then they would have been killed anyway, so maybe... You know, when Jews gave up their life for being Jewish, and we did time and again, when we gave up our life for being Jewish, that's when we survived. Those individuals may have been killed, but we as a people survived. All right, so in America, here, there is a lot of anti-Semitism, and it is spreading, not like, of course, in Spain and so forth. However, it, it, it is on the rise, most definitely, and I have personal... Um, you know, stories of that. So the lesson is that we be proud of being Jewish. If we face anti-Semitism, respond with Jewish pride, be public about being Jewish. Don't be afraid to declare our Jewishness publicly. Don't be afraid to stand different, stand alone. But ultimately, we of course need the um, shepherd to protect us. And um, we wouldn't have been, we cannot survive without God. After all, after um, a recent shooting in a synagogue, People 
told me, I think I mentioned it here in this class, that we need to arm all the synagogues and all the Jews need to arm themselves and um, without debating, whether getting into the debate of whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, um, I responded, without getting into it, I responded that no matter how well you arm yourself, there will always be people with bigger arms than you. And we Jews had times in our history when we were armed, um, but the Romans had bigger arms than us. So there will always be people with bigger arms than you. So while that might be part of the solution, the ultimate solution is that we need to be proud of being Jewish and we need to rely on our shepherd who always takes care of us because we survived not because of our arms throughout our history, but we survived because God has protected us. And that is why the, the holiday of Purim is called Purim. Purim, as we said before, means a lottery. Now... The lottery is just the way Haman chose the date. So what does lottery have to do with the whole story? It's just a very small detail in the story. Why would we call it after a very minor detail, after the lottery? So we are told that lottery is more than just... um, Lottery is more than just the lottery of Haman, but it is really the lottery of our people. Our people, like a lot that is chosen, picked out of the hat, our people have been chosen by God. And so God has, because we are chosen by God, even when others with the lottery, the one who wins is not the one who is the strongest, not the one who is the wealthiest, not the one who is the most deserving, but not the one who's the smartest doesn't win with the lottery, right? When you have a lottery, the one that is supposed to win is the one that wins, right? Nothing else. There are no other factors involved, right? There is no lucky number that you can choose. It's just what it, you, the lucky one wins. The same thing is also our lottery. God chose us. Doesn't matter if others are smarter than us. Doesn't matter if others are stronger than us. Others are bigger than us. We survive because God wants us to survive. So no matter what happens, we have to remember that God is always looking out for us. So rather than being afraid or trying to hide our Jewishness. We need to be public. We need to be open. And remember that ultimately God is looking out for us. And to conclude, Isaiah says in a very famous verse, If the mountains collapse and the hills fall, my kindness from you will never fall, and my covenant of peace with you will never collapse. Amar Merachamech Hashem says, He who um, has mercy on you, God. So God has promised, no matter, even if everything is collapsing around us, and everything, even if everything is falling apart around us, God promises, my covenant with you will never fall, will never falter. You will, I will keep my covenant with you forever.